As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to Full Time with Meg Linehan. That is me, your host of this podcast about women's soccer, Meg Linehan. We are trying something very different this week. It is just me, your questions, a microphone, me watching myself record this entire episode on Zoom, technically also my cup of coffee right here. But on Monday, I asked for your questions for a mailbag episode, and you came through. 155 questions via the form I set up, another 30 or so on Twitter. So I had plenty to choose from and obviously did not get to every single one of them. But I'm hoping, even though it's just me this week and I'm going to be forced to listen to hear myself talk for probably about an hour. I am very excited about this episode and this format, and I'm hoping that we can make this a regular part of the show. Hopefully you enjoy it. I am recording on Wednesday. Before we get to all of these questions, here is the latest. Now, if you could not tell from my Twitter on Wednesday morning, I spent the morning drinking my first cup of coffee, plus watching Liverpool upset Manchester United in the Conti Cup, thanks to a couple of penalties and a stunner of a goal from Rachel Furness to make it 3-1. Definitely a great game to watch on the FA player. And right before really hitting this record button on Wednesday, U.S. Soccer did me the kindness of making their October camp official. It is scheduled for October 18th, through the 28th in Commerce City, Colorado, so immediately starting the day after the final games of the NWSL Fall Series. Now, a source has confirmed to me that national team players overseas will not be on this roster, which is not surprising, considering that having players return for a 10-day camp that does not actually involve any game minutes is kind of a logistical nightmare at this point in time. So this is the first time that the U.S. Women's National Team will have gotten the band back together since she believes Cup. Obviously, the roster for this camp will look pretty different. The full medical protocols for this camp are also online. And as the release said, the U.S. team and staff will operate inside a controlled environment at a Denver area hotel. Everyone entering the controlled environment will undergo multiple COVID-19 tests before traveling and then will be tested upon arrival and then every two days during camp. There will be no full team training until the results of all arrival tests are confirmed. U.S. soccer is also still exploring further plans for November. All right, in news everyone could have predicted, 
Kristen Press and Tobin Heath jersey sold out, <laughs> sold well for Manchester United. Shocking, I know. Uh, they all sold the men for the first three days after their announcement. It's almost like there's a demand for women's sports merchandise. Who could have seen it coming? All right, three NWSL Fall Series games on tap this weekend, Pride vs. Dash on Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern on CBS Sports Network. We will not go into the joys of what the difference between CBS, CBS Sports Network, and CBS All Access, and what gets you where at this time. Sky Blue FC vs. Red Stars Saturday at 12.30 Eastern on CBS All Access. I will again uh, be at that game. And then OL Rain host Portland at 8 p.m. Eastern on Twitch on Saturday night. Now, you might actually want to wake up early on Saturday as well. Spurs vs. Manchester United. Alex Morgan watch is obviously still on for her WSL debut. That fixture is at 7.30 in the morning Eastern time. Sorry, West Coast. And it will be live on NBC Sports Network. NBC Sports will also stream Sunday morning's Arsenal match against Brighton at 7.30 in the morning, followed by Chelsea versus Man City at 9.30 a.m. Eastern. All right, one more thing before we get to the mailbag. It is your reminder for me to you that for $1 a month, you can start your new subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash full-time. By signing up at that link or off any one of my stories, that's a subscription that shows women's soccer coverage is worth your investment. All right. It is now time for the biggest mailbag I have ever done. I don't actually know what my record is for written mailbags, just for the record, but I feel very confident that this is going to surpass them. I have 42 questions in my doc that I am working off of, and I hope that I manage to get to them all. That is the plan. I have to (laughs) really keep an eye on the time because I do not want to make you listen to 90 minutes of my voice. Now, if I did not pick your question, that does not mean it was not a good one. You're going to realize pretty soon in this episode that I'm going to dance very effectively around the upcoming expansion draft. That is because obviously not only am I working on a story on it, but you know, we don't have expansion draft lists lists at this point. I tend to not enjoy speculation a huge amount. So that is just a personal thing. Um, There are a few that snuck in here though. I have a whole other document already filled with great questions that I wanted to save for an actual mailbag that I am hoping to get to this week as well. There's one that is so perfect, but I need need moving images for it. I'll put it that way. But Claire G, great question. I appreciate you for asking it. (laughs) I really hope I'm going to make time to answer it because it is that good. But also thank you to everyone for taking the time to ask questions. This episode obviously would not happen without you. Now, before I dig into all of these questions submitted to me via the form I set up, there were a few from Twitter that I want to start with. Uh, I think the first question I actually received was from at NWSL Playground. I'm sure you have seen that Twitter account. The question is, would you have gone down the slide? And obviously, like, this is a pretty short answer. The the answer is yes. Like, during the run of play, right? Like, that is a key, key thing. I do want to tell a story that has not heard the light of day (laughs) at this point. And I don't want to name names because I don't want to, like, it's up to them if they want to reveal their involvement in this little plan. But please know during Challenge Cup, there was a player who asked for an assist in terms of a potential goal celebration, planning on using the slide, 
wanted a, an item placed in that slide if a celebration were to happen. So I, I unfortunately, I'm, uh, <laughs> there's no way for me to um, embed this into the podcast if you're just listening. But there is a, a photo of a Budweiser beer stuck right next to the playground slide that is sent to me from an accomplice on the inside. So please know that we were so close to having one of the most epic goal celebrations arranged from a distance um, that never got to see the light of day. But I am hoping that that potentially sets the creative juices flowing for for players who might want to consider celebrations in the future. So that is only like maybe roughly half of that story. But please know it was a very enjoyable day for me. All right. Tannenwald asked me, when is the 2023 World Cup schedule coming out? No. Um, what was it like attending the Sky Blue game with all of the COVID protections in place? That is a question from Mickey on Twitter. Um, I will tell you, it was about as weird as you would expect. Obviously, they're not playing at Red Bull Arena. They're also not playing at Rutgers. So it's a new stadium, right? Um, they, they send a very complete document in terms of what they expect out of media um, people. I was actually the only reporter at the game. I was um, taking photos just because I figured I might as well multitask and I don't typically write off of games at this point. So I was like, I might as well get um, some multitasking in. But obviously you're walking up, they make you fill out a form, a questionnaire. Um, it is kind of honor system. Obviously, NWSL does not have uh, the means to test media who might show up and and it is up to every local team as to how they approach it but you know it did feel feel very safe there were not a lot of people in that stadium at all um i wasn't allowed to like stand on the field for photos for instance like we were actually up in the stands to take photos so it definitely a lot of distance um do a temperature check a lot of hand sanitizer obviously involved though you know everyone is outside so that's that's kind of the bigger concern at this point all right. Heather asks, how do the WSL and NWSL both compete to be the best women's league in the world without harming the other? And obviously, you know, I've written about this in the past. I ultimately think these two leagues competing is a good thing, right? I don't think that they are actually even necessarily set up to actively harm each other, right? I don't think the WSL's success or growth ultimately harms the NWSL. I think it it poses a challenge that NWSL has to solve in order to attract and retain talent, right? So that that's all kind of stuff that I've previously written about them. But I think that that competition to be the best league in the world, and I also think that, you know, we, we could talk about what we even consider to be the best league in the world. Like, what are the qualifications that sets up the best league in the world. And obviously there has been a lot of talk about NWSL in the past being the best league in the world in terms of quality, right? In terms of parity, parity is really the key word there. Um, but I think WSL is going to force NWSL to make improvements that despite claiming to be the best in the world, things like training facilities and all of that kind of like logistical stuff for quality of life when it comes to players, like that has never been best league in the world quality. And that's where WSL is really going to force NWSL into an area of growth and, you know, roster rules and allocation money, right? Like these are all things that are being introduced. So 
NWSL is going to provide, obviously, competition for WSL and HES. Um, but generally, I, I am not necessarily worried about these two leagues harming each other. And I also think that the discussion, even the way that we frame things around, like what is the best league in the world, doesn't necessarily put us into a productive space. But that is just me. I know that we we all like lists, right? And they, they get a lot of clicks. That's not typically, though, how I like to think about um, these sorts of things. All right, Amelia asked, will Everton or Manchester United, spelled with an asterisk, I'm assuming she does not want United fans in her mentions, break into the WSL big three first? I think Everton obviously has had a very successful WSL season so far. They are undefeated um, nine points out of three games. But I do fundamentally think that like bigger picture, right? The question about cracking into the big three in terms of, you know, Champions League qualifications and things like that, like all of these things kind of boil down into investment in the team. And I just think Manchester United is going to be in a much stronger place and have a much stronger desire to prove a point. Um, and I think we saw that with the Kristen Press and Tobin Heath signings, right? Like in terms of really making a play for talent and also getting those two players there on a year-long contract is obviously a huge part of this as well. So I kind of see United making that leap forward. I think right at the moment, obviously Everton has had a better performance so far this season, especially considering um, Wednesday morning's game out of United. But fundamentally, I think this whole question of like big three really does come down to investment and the will to succeed in multiple competitions, not just WSL, right? Like it, it involves Champions Leagues, it involves FA Cup and all of these sorts of things. Like, can you build a deep squad that is going to get you through all of the various obligations? And that's where I see United breaking ahead of Everton. All right, Adam asked... Uh, a lot of favorites here. Favorites were definitely a real theme of the question. Favorite books, movies, and favorite beers. I had to make a list so that way I would not have to just sit here and stumble through my answer. But um, a few fiction wrecks for favorite books. Station Eleven, still a real classic to me. Very, very much targeted at my interest of both like post-apocalyptic fiction, also mixed with some Shakespeare. So very targeted. Um, I really enjoy the Dublin Murder Squad series by Tana French. Uh, it's extremely Irish, but especially the first two, Into the Woods and The Likeness, are real classics. Um, Tell the Wolves I'm Home by Carol Rifka Brunt is another one. For nonfiction, if there is one wreck I can give you from a more modern um, point of view, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us by Hanif Abdurraqib is like a real go-to for me um, in terms of essays, but also just writing and and both you know music and pop culture and all this other stuff that he writes about but also you know um politics and and like i just i could read hanif's writing every day all day um for movies since uh actually adam said other than harry potter slash star wars obviously for books and movies um empire records is a real gem for me but also i would say edge of tomorrow is up there and for beers, this is going to be a very Vermont-heavy list, but Shed Mountain Ale was actually the um, featured beer at my wedding, but also the beer that I um, helped convince my wife that beer was not all bad with. Um, Zero Gravity is probably my favorite brewery at this point, between Green State Lager, which is just completely drinkable, but Little Wolf, which is a pale ale. And then this summer, actually, when we were still in Vermont, they dropped an Italian Pilsner that I 
absolutely loved. Um, they also, I think, have some of the best design out there in terms of their cans. For a New York one, I really, really like Six Points Alpenflow. That is one where if I see it in the store, I'm walking out with it, whether or not I have room in the fridge for it. Okay. Sammy asked, do you have any expectations for the expansion draft? <laughs> Parenthetical, other than chaos. Um, realistically, what do you think the NWSL will look like here? And also, not to send you all of the questions, but if you want a fun one, what have been your favorite quarantine watches or reads? All right, so first, expansion draft. I think, so we still don't technically have the rules. I have some inkling of the rules at this point, and I think that there is a real factor at play here, and I don't want to get into it too heavily. Again, I am going to dance around this expansion draft thing because I would like to actually break <laughs> this news. Um, but the rules and the league look very different from the last time that we had an expansion draft, and I think that that's really important to consider. So we have some more teams coming in. Obviously, they are going to start building, I think, expansion drafts for what the league is going to look like in the future. So I would I would fully expect for you, for everyone really, to think of this in a very new light considering what we've seen in the past out of expansion drafts. I do not think it's going to be nearly as straightforward as what players get protected and what, what players are left up for grabs. And again, we also have all of the, the trades that go around with any expansion draft and kind of the maneuvering of how do I protect people or, you know, get value out of players that I would expect to go in an expansion draft um, and sidestep it around. It's just, it's going to be, I don't know if it's going to be chaotic, but I do think it's going to be complicated. And I think that is probably the easiest way to answer that question at this point. Um. What do I think the NWSO will look like next year? I think it's going to be kind of um, a growth year again for NWSL. I think we are going to see, I, I actually ran into Lisa Baird, the NWSL commissioner at the Sky Blue game last weekend. I do think we're going to see some different things out of the schedule. I think they really did enjoy having um, Challenge Cup as kind of this standalone event. And I think we might see kind of the way where WSL, right, has both the regular season, but also FA Cup and Conti Cup play a role in the season, we might see something out of that. And also you get a chance to work around the Olympics, right? You could put in a small competition during the Olympics when you lose some national team players where you get a break from the actual league, but you still get games out of the NWSL, out of the players who are still available. So I do think we're going to see something slightly different there. Um, favorite Quarantine watches or reads. Um, I have been reading actually a, a pretty decent amount of books, but I will say you're going to hear me talk a lot about Ted Lasso in my one thing at the end of the show. And that is absolutely what I would like to stress right now is um, it is worth the one month subscription to Apple Plus television in order to watch Ted Lasso. I, I've had a person who has been texting me kind of nonstop, like, you need to watch a show, you need to watch a show. And that person was deeply correct. And now they get to gloat, um, but in a very nice way. So Ted Lasso, 100%. It is, it is delightful. All right, two more out of the Twitter section. Uh, Davina would like to know my top five color combos for plaid shirts. The best part of this is while I was prepping, I actually had to go look inside my own closet to figure this out. I don't know if I have a top five combo because I just kind of 
gravitate towards gray and blue for all of my clothes generally, but I do also have a green and black and gray plaid that I wear a lot. But every other color combo really in my closet is some variation of like blue and white, gray and blue, <laughs> various shades of blue. So it's, I'm not a very exciting person when it comes to that. All right. Uh, Michaela would like an oral history of the Boston Breakers, which we obviously do not have time for, and chances of the franchise ever returning. That's the one that I'd like to focus on a little bit more. Um, I do think I would not call the Boston Breakers franchise buried. I'll put it that way. I do think that there is always a remote chance that some version of the Breakers will come back in Boston. The real challenge is that we have never seen an ownership group come into place in Boston that has had a very meaningful approach to reviving the team, to saving the team when it could have been saved, right? The other challenges, and and this is not necessarily even a Boston Breakers challenge, but uh, if you're going to have that team play in Boston, what the stadium situation is, obviously, as a Revs fan, I have lived through the endless news cycle of when the Revs will be moving to Boston and where that stadium will be and and what a soccer-specific stadium in Boston would take, right? Um, So I, I would not count the Boston Breakers out entirely, but... Either you need someone like me or Steph Young to hit the lottery, probably, or you actually really need a more meaningful ownership group to start being built. And it's it's going to be a much longer term project, I think, than some of these other um, potential expansion groups that we've seen. All right. So through the Twitter questions that I had picked, that's a good warm up. Now let's... <laughs> We're 20 minutes into this episode and I've gotten eight questions in. So this this really does. Uh, we're going to speed things up a little bit um, and and move along. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, so let's get to the forum here. Melissa says, I am a COVID nurse. First of all, thank you for everything that you are doing. Um, I'm a COVID nurse, so while a lot of people seem to be more out and about lately, I still stay at home as much as possible. I'm looking for good soccer books to get me through lockdown. She gives a list. Um, I'm especially interested in understanding the game from perspective of cultures and countries we don't often center in the soccer conversation or from people with other identities we don't often center. Um, so that's question part one. So for soccer books, um, I've got a couple recommendations in terms of um, trying to, to get maybe out of, you know, uh, men's soccer slash, uh, men, 
uh, in general. Um, so Gwen Oxenham, Under the Lights and in the Dark, if you have not read that, is kind of like my go-to recommendation in terms of women's soccer books. Um, I'm actually, it is currently on my desk. But uh, Footballera from Brenda Elsie and Joshua Nadell. Um, it is a history of women in sports in Latin America. It is absolutely a great read. I am using it for a potential story right at the moment. And then uh, Kicking Center by Rachel Allison is another one that I would definitely recommend. It is about gender and marketing um, back in WPS days, but I think there's still a lot to learn from it. It is slightly more academic, but I think if you are a women's soccer person, you will still completely understand 100% of what is happening. And then finally, one more for you, One Goal by Amy Bass is also uh, probably something that I think you would very much enjoy. The other one that Melissa asked was, if you are, since you are so into classical literature, have you read Song of Achilles or Circe? And what did you think of them? Um, I have not read Circe yet. That has literally been sitting next to my bed for since the day it came out and I just need to make time for it. But Song of Achilles is amazing. I have actually seen that author on a couple of panels. Um, she came to Boston Book Festival when I was still there. And um, I I want to say I asked a question during that panel and she was like, you are clearly a literature major. And I was like, yes, I am. Um, so yes, I still need to read that. Once I do, I will report back on Twitter. All right. Haley had a couple as well. With the NWSL having such an abbreviated season, what do you think Andonofsky will do in terms of calling up younger players? There is a huge veteran base in the U.S. Women's National Team that I imagine won't necessarily be playing in 2023. All right, so question one. Um, obviously, we did get news of this camp, right? I think, you know, he had this identification camp at the tail end of um, 2019, where he called up a whole bunch of younger players, you know, people like Amani Dorsey, for example, right? So I think what's going to be very interesting now is balancing all of the data from Challenge Cup, from Fall Series, uh, as players start to travel overseas, right? How do you shift the transition? And in theory, the Olympics should have just kind of been the tail end of a cycle with uh, 2019 World Cup, 2020 Olympics, you just kind of ride out that cycle and then you get to start again. And now that cycle has been uh, disrupted in a way that obviously everyone is disrupted out of the cycle, but you're kind of going, okay, how do I prioritize looking for 2023 or 2021 Olympics, right? Assuming again, still that they happen, that America is even allowed to attend. Um, so now I think the question becomes, do you start figuring out what you want to do for 2023? Do you want to start figuring out the heart of this team for 2023? And yes, there are definitely going to be players who were in the 2019 roster who probably would have been in the 2020 roster and now maybe are, are a little more up for grabs. But, you know, I think that there has been a lot of time to sit here and strategize while they have not been able to play games and figure out, okay, here's all this data from Challenge Cup and you know, there there are a lot of questions that I got in terms of players like Christy Mewis and Shea Groom, right? Players like this who have really excelled at whatever games we've gotten in 2020 and how do you balance those against, you know, maybe like a Carly Lloyd or Mal Pugh, right, who have been injured and, and unable to play as much. And I think the question really turns into you know, what we're going to see in terms of, I would like to wait really until we actually see this roster 
for the October camp to start to get a sense of, okay, what direction are we moving in? But fundamentally, I think that um, Flacco is not necessarily afraid to move on a strategy, right? And not kind of like just let things ride for a while. I think that if there is a, a strategy that would be both successful for 2021 Olympics and 2023 World Cup, he would very likely move on it and also have the support of someone like Kate Markgraf to do so. All right. Uh, second question from Haley. When you visited the Pacific Northwest last year um, and also many previous years, what was your favorite beer? I got a lot of beer questions in this and I appreciate it. Um, for Portland, Base Camp Brewing's S'more Stout, when you go into that brewery, they actually will put a marshmallow on the rim of your glass and toast it um, as you drink it. And it is incredible. All right. So again, uh, I touched on Mewis briefly, but Daniel asked, do you think both Mewis and Groom get the call up for the U.S. Women's National Team whenever camps resume? Honestly, I think yes, mostly because Vlaco also knows both of those players, thanks to FC Kansas City and and having played for him before. So I really do think that we are going to see there's no harm, right? Like, we don't know how many players are going to come into this October camp yet, but I don't see any downside to calling in both Christy Mewis and Shea Groom and putting them in that in that training mechanism. Also, Christy Mewis has been there before, um, has been in the national tra- team system before, and obviously the first attempt at turning her into a national team player had a very misguided approach entirely, trying to turn her into a left back right? So we get a chance to get a look at her in terms of what she could be. In ter- it's it's most likely just knowing this midfield for the U.S. Women's National Team and looking at the ages of the players involved, right? You have that core four of Julie Ertz, Sam Mewis, Lindsey Horan, and Rose Lavelle, and I don't see anyone cracking that top four right at this point. But you do have Christy Mewis, who could be a very important and crucial depth piece in terms of upping training and and things like that. So again, don't see a downside. Okay, Penelope asks, what does women's soccer journalism need to do in order to be less of a click and open wider for writers of color? And I really wanted to answer this question, although obviously this is going to be a very brief answer, but we did have, uh, I, I hosted a panel featuring Steph Young, Sandra Herrera, and Bria Felician, all three of whom have been on the show. There are a lot of answers to this. Um, Part of what I want to talk about very quickly here is women's soccer coverage in general is still not necessarily a viable path for people to make money, right? There are only a few of us actively making money that you can live on. Um, I'm still the only full-time reporter for a mainstream outlet who covers women's soccer full-time, right? So part one of this answer is simply just like actually turning this into something that is a, is a way that you can like put food on the table, right? And then part two of that is absolutely ensuring how do we get real training, right? Like everyone who is kind of really in this space from a women's soccer point of view has not come in with any sort of formal journalism training. It is a labor of love that some people have managed to turn into an actual job like me, right? So I spent years paying out of pocket to cover women's soccer, which not everyone can do. 
and how do we break down some of these barriers? And I, I think if you can track down, um, Southside Trap Pod had a breakdown of that panel. There are a lot of good um, informative answers from that panel, but it's just in terms of people who are in this space, like how do you mentor people? How do you try to lift them up? How do you give them um, coverage opportunities? But also, you know, in terms of for this podcast, right? Like I will not lie to you guys, I actively avoid. I've been trying to minimize how many white men are on this podcast because we've heard a lot of them and I would like to highlight other voices. And obviously there are a lot more white women in this space than there are women of color, right? So that has been my particular thing that I try to focus on of how do I get women of color onto this podcast, but like being actually... (laughs) like aware of of who you're talking to and who you're quoting and things like that, right? And who you're asking uh, questions of. Um, so this is not necessarily any sort of definitive answer to Penelope's question, but there are some resources out there. I think it is obviously an ongoing conversation that we need to keep having of how do we open up some of these doors? I mean, I would like to think that we are all pretty approachable. Um, if someone DMs me about starting to cover women's soccer, I almost always try to answer them, but um, sometimes it's also just a matter of time. So a lot, a lot, a lot of work here to be done. All right. Um, Bay asked, are there any investigative pieces that you wanted to do but got shut down from doing? The quick answer to this one is no, but there are some things that have happened within women's soccer where you cannot get, um, where I haven't been able to get necessarily confirmation of something happening or, you know, uh, look at that Utah story that we've just been reporting on, right? Like this has kind of been something that's been going on for years where there have been a lot of talk, right? So the challenge is getting people on record or the challenge is getting a story to a point where if there are some questions about culture, right, that you have done the work and you can feel confident in knowing that a story is going to hold up, right? Like fundamentally, you want to make sure that you are treating both sides of it with respect. So there are definitely some stories where I've checked them out and gone. It's not that I I don't believe something or, you know, that it it didn't happen or, or anything like that. But sometimes it is simply a matter of not getting it to a place where you can get it across the finish line and into a place where it can be published. And, you know, that's that's pretty much all of reporting. But women's soccer is no different. All right. Brianna asked, what steps can NWSL fans take to create more or better TV viewership opportunities for games and merchandise options? Obviously, this is a very big question. Um, Really for TV viewership, right? First of all, it is watching. Watching games when they're on television, right, is honestly like the easiest thing that you can do to help support the game is actually tuning in and then taking that extra step to to get other people to tune in right amplifying how to watch games because i think the biggest single barrier to to viewership numbers is the fact that we are still not at promotion levels that we should be at um we are still not at accessibility to information on how to watch women's soccer right like I know that there has been a lot of confusion about the fall series, especially considering the fact that it's really only four games per team, but then you also have CBS, CBS All Access, CBS Sports Network, and Twitch, right? And so 
a fan from a league such as uh, WNBA, right, might be used to balancing, okay, well, some games are on Twitter, some games are on CBS Sports Network, some games are on local broadcast channels, right? So there's not just this kind of like, ah, yes, I'm going to tune into CBS and watch. So sometimes it is it is a matter of texting someone that you know would probably want to watch that game and say, hey, uh, make sure you don't miss Portland playing. They're on Twitch this week or something along those lines. That's like the easiest thing that you can do. The bigger part, I think, is, you know, there are obviously companies now that are starting to form for media rights deals and things like that, right? Like tuning into NBC Sports to watch WSL and showing there's a demand there. Again, easiest thing that you can do. But I think it's also, you know, I, I definitely get the the drive to... Um, ask for additional access points, right? Like I know that there's a lot of frustration around CBS Sports Network right at the moment, as opposed to All Access or Big CBS. And I think that obviously public pressure is still a piece of the pie for women's soccer. But I do think that in terms of TV stuff, you know, we saw that online bullying, which is kind of a joke, but kind of not, worked when it came to coverage of the NWL and the Challenge Cup. Right. So I think it's being loud and showing that there's a demand, but also beyond just the kind of like tossing off a tweet at ESPN or whoever it is, right, that's not covering women's soccer. It's finding people who are decision makers and making a persuasive case and not just 100 or 280 characters of annoyance that they're not doing this thing, right, of saying, hey, why don't you have a dedicated writer for NWSL, when you consider these television numbers and the room for growth it has and the sponsorships it has, and actually laying down that case for additional coverage or television viewership points, you know, like any anything like that, that might be the next step. When it comes to merchandise, this is a much more complicated question because there are so many different... <sighs> There's no there's no easy way for us to to say like okay well if you just go to Nike right because we have seen time and time again that the um, the demand far outweighs the actual supply of merchandise for women's sports so really I think one of the things there is if there are independent creators in this space right that you support them. I think for a American women's soccer point of view, a place like Breaking Tea, right? The places that U.S. women's national team players have licensing deals with, supporting them, obviously shopping off of the NWSL store. We saw that hoodie sell out very, very quickly um, right after it dropped. I, again, like speaking with Lisa at the game at Sky Blue, um, it does really seem like they have seen that. Um, they also, I think, anticipated that demand and then were surprised <laughs> when um, the website started showing things out of stock and like actually truly tried to work and make sure that um, ordering was was active again because of this demand. But they want to, you know, keep that energy going and turn it into more products, right? So some of it is just putting your money where your mouth is. Um, again, I think that on the merchandise level, that is kind of the basic thing, but also finding spots where 
you know, either players are directly benefiting from or the teams or the league, right? Like those are the most important, but I think also showing via independent creators and, and some of these other spaces, right? Like asking a place like Talisman Caps, right? Someplace where this sort of like culture stuff comes into play and asking them to have women's soccer merchandise and see how it does for them, I think is also very helpful. Okay, so that is the first round of questions that I had. There is so much of me talking in this episode, but I did want to take a quick break from all the questions for me to ask you something of, do you have an extra five minutes? Because if you do and you are listening to this episode and this podcast, taking those five minutes and leaving a rating and review for this podcast truly does make a huge difference. And that it's not like just me asking a favor from you, like this really does make a difference. We crossed 400 ratings this past week. I would love to keep that energy going. I read every single comment if you leave a review and I really truly, and this is obviously a thing I say, but like I really do appreciate everyone who has taken this extra step to help grow the podcast and to help grow full-time coverage of women's soccer, particularly the NWSL. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Okay, so... Here's here's probably, I think, the highlight question in this podcast episode. Um, two different people asked me this question. Uh, it does not shock me that my followers, somehow two people lined up on pretty much the exact same question, but both Megan, uh, this one with an H, and David asked me to assign a style of beer for every NWSL team. Now, obviously, I'm trying to keep things relatively short in this episode, so like I have other thoughts on why I made these assignments, but really, just like for sheer vibes, this is how it shook out for me. I am I am totally willing to debate this online. Um, none of these are meant as an insult, or I don't. I, well, one of them is kind of a joke, but really, like there are there's no bad answer here. All right, Chicago Red Stars Pilsner, right? I feel that that one's pretty self-explanatory. Also, when I mentioned to Sandra Herrera this question, she basically threatened to fight me if the Chicago Red Stars were not a Pilsner. Um, Houston Dash, either a Canadian import, obviously, or an English-style bitter. Uh, North Carolina, I think, is a stout, very heavy, and can knock you on your ass when you are not expecting it. O.L. Rain, a Saison, uh, very light. Obviously European. Um, Orlando, I think, gets the sour. I think Portland has to be the IPA uh, for the craft <laughs> and dedicated fan base. Um, Sky Blue FC, I have as a Hellas, one of my favorite um, styles of beer. Uh, Utah, non-alcoholic. 
I'm sorry, I had to do it. And then Washington Spirit, uh, a wit beer. I mean, you know, who doesn't love a good Allagash, right? All right, so Mike D asked, why don't NWSL teams share player salaries and total team payrolls? And that is a fun question that I don't have a great answer to beyond the fact that I think when the league started and we consider where that salary cap was, right? There's not a lot of transparency when it comes to money amounts. Like we are in theory supposed to get transparency when it comes to allocation money that has not necessarily been what has happened, right? Um, but th- I think that there is so much concern over, you know, back when this league started, minimum player salary was in the $6,000 range, right? And you do not, from an optic standpoint, you don't want to necessarily make that number more public than it has to be. And you don't have to say like, hey, this player is only worth X number of dollars. And I think that that mentality has just carried through the entire league history so far, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but at some point you do kind of have to grow up and say, yes, these numbers can be public because there's also not just newsworthiness to these numbers and and what contracts might be and all that kind of stuff, but it also provides media and fans and and people who are watching the ability to say, this is how I can evaluate how successful a team building has been, where contract space might be, right? Like it just gives you a more informed view about the team. And now I think that we are in the space where we have um, roster rules like allocation money, right? Like it is more important than ever to understand how all of those moving pieces work. Um, so I do think at some point the NWSL is kind of going to have to like move into its next stage in terms of that level of transparency. And, and hopefully it is sooner rather than later. All right. Emily asked, I don't know if you know this, but do you have information on this yellow card rule for the fall series? I can understand player safety, but if no other stats this year count, how is that yellow card accumulation can affect the first game of 2021? And also, does this stay in effect if the player goes to a different team in the offseason? Now, I can't super answer the goes to a different team. I would assume that yellow cards are essentially assigned to the player and not the team, right? Um, when it comes to competition rules for fall series, these have never been released publicly, but I have seen a copy of them. And... Ultimately, the way that my understanding of the yellow card rule is, is that if it is yellow card accumulation, that does not carry over. The language that I have seen is that um, any direct red card suspension that cannot be served during the 2020 NWSL Fall Series will be carried over to the team's next NWSL regular season match. Indirect red card suspension will not carry over to the team's next NWSL regular season match. So I think that that hopefully clarifies it. There may be a a more recent version of these rules that I have not seen, but as it stands, my understanding of fall series competition rules, uh, yellow card accumulation suspension should not carry over, but if someone gets a direct red card in the last game of the NWSL fall series, that would, and that would follow the player. Um, okay. Although actually, you know, now that I'm reading, it would be carried over to the teams again, NWSL. It's just, will we ever get a definitive answer on anything? All right. Uh, a few questions about 
my job and all sorts of stuff, but here's one of them. What's it like to report on women's soccer? What specifically makes it challenging or unique compared to reporting on other sports? That one is from Laura. Um, it, I, I would assume that it is, you know, just talking to everyone. I think that there's definitely some differences, right, between me and my coworkers who might cover NFL or NHL or NBA, you know, like all these major leagues, right? Like, I think that we are still fighting a lot of fights when it comes to access and um, all of that kind of stuff. Obviously, I work with the NWL Media Association. I'm on the executive committee. Um, but, you know, I, I think that there are professional organizations for every single league. There are obviously still negotiations that happen with reporters and leagues in terms of access and, and how to cover things and all, all that kind of stuff. So I do think fundamentally it is kind of the same thing. I think I enjoy the fact that because women's soccer has not necessarily had this kind of historic level of coverage, right, there is so much room for growth and for figuring new things out, right, and for for figuring out where it's going to do well within the athletic. Um, so that's kind of the thing that I get to play around with the most. All right, Alex, who noted that she's from Peru, so probably the uh, – um, furthest question that we got, but favorite favorite anecdote with Heyo, Heather O'Reilly, and is she one of your favorite players? <laughs> First of all, yes. Um, yes, she is one of my favorite players. Obviously, a uh, Boston Breaker player that I got to watch for a while, but also, you know, FC Kansas City and all that kind of good stuff. Um, favorite anecdote with Heyo is um, probably the time that this was back at the very start of NWSL, might have been WPSL Elite. I honestly have, this is all very hazy, but um, she got my phone number from Leslie Osborne, and I got a text out of the blue one day asking um, if I could come over and take photos of her for like a sponsorship, sponsorship obligation, and I legitimately had to like Google the area code because I did not believe it was her. And then when I went over to take those photos, Heather Mitz answered the door. So it was just like a very casual morning <laughs> in Boston for me. But Heo is is truly a gem of a person and one of my favorite players. And just, um, I don't know. I, I think that she is still a player that if she felt like it, she could probably just come back whenever she wanted to because they're – is you, you know what you're getting with Heo, and um, she's still pretty unstoppable. All right. Theo asked, the NWSL is about to complete its eighth season. Would you say there has been one player or perhaps a small clan that have defined the first chapter of the NWSL? For example, a Cheryl Swoops type. And who is the next player to step into the role as the face slash leader of the league for the next chapter? This is a great question. I think that there are a few different answers to this question. I think when I, when I think about the NWSL in that first chapter which we're probably honestly still kind of in, right? The player that immediately pops into my head is Lauren Holiday. Um, but I think that there are also so many other players that have defined what the NWSL looks and feels like. I mean, players like a McCall Zerboni, right, who not just played in, in NWSL but WPSL Elite, WPS before that, kind of like that that player that, has been around and who got a shot via NWSL, right? Like that is the kind of player to me that 
I think about when I think about NWSL, but also international players like Christine Sinclair, Jess Fishlock, Sam Kerr, right? But then I think there's also this trio of players like Jessica McDonald, Lynn Williams, Crystal Dunn, right? I mean, I think about Crystal Dunn in 2015 (laughs) and what she did in this league. And I think that those three players, um, Lynn and J-Mac and and Crystal, have also shaped this league and been a huge part of what it means to be a player in the NWSL. And and J-Mac has obviously been on, on so many different teams and then really found a home with the North Carolina Courage. But it, it has been very amusing to see all three of them end up in one spot and be able to shape what a team looks like and, and also what the league looks like and have the courage dominate the league in such a way. Um, in terms of the next chapter, I think that there are a few names, but the one that immediately jumped to my mind and I think I'm going to go with here is Zara King. I think that she very much has the potential to be a real leader. Um and, and I mean, she's already a fan favorite. She was a fan favorite from the moment she was drafted by Utah. And I really cannot wait to see where she goes in terms of her leadership voice within the NWSL. All right. Uh, Lauren asks, I'm wondering where and how you see room for more support from both the NWSL and national team for people of color, uh, LGBTQ plus and other minorities. And Obviously, another very huge question that we are not going to have time to get into nearly the amount of nitty gritty that we could dedicate to this topic. But I think the first part of this, and and I think this was actually something that I said in that article about NWSL fandom, right, that ran during the Challenge Cup. And I think part of this, too, is that in addition to like the all of these markets have been underserved in terms of the league and the national team, right? The first part of this is ensuring that both physical and online spaces are safe for these people to to be a full part of the community. And I think that that is really the first thing of just how do we ensure that if you are a person of color, if you are queer, that you feel welcome and safe and that you are able to be a part of this community and that you are able to be seen as like a full person, right? And Obviously, there are always going to be challenges in terms of where teams are, right, and (laughs) what states they're in and and all sorts of and just general events in this country. But I think that is the first part, and I don't know if we've necessarily even unlocked that part of it, but I do think obviously there's so much room in terms of marketing and actually doing more than just having, you know, something like a pride night, right? The commercialization of pride or black history month or anything like that. Like there's a lot of room to actually think about how you include these communities and make them feel like, okay, again, one nation, one team, right? So very big topic, very, very, uh, not helpful answer on this point. But again, I think the first part is just We've got to figure out the safety part for everyone involved. Okay. Uh, Nikita asks, hypothetical question. When we look back in history, 10, 15, even 20 years from now, who will be defined as the golden generation of U.S. women's national team players? Players from the 90s, the 2010s, or we still haven't seen them yet, and the best is still to come. So I guess the question is how we want to define golden generation, right? Because to me, obviously, my golden generation is the 99 team. 
Um, whereas I think the 2015 to 2019 era so far is the best. And then, but theoretically, they could be surpassed by the players that we have not yet seen. Um, so I think part of this is framing, and I'm, I'm cheating a little bit as I answer this question, but I do think that really, in terms of like a golden generation, I do think it's probably always going to be the 90s players, even though the game has changed so drastically. I think in terms of best, that 2015-2019 back-to-back World Cup, I really don't think this team is ever going to hit that height again. On, and and maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe the U.S. Women's National Team wins it again in 2023, and that that time frame is expanded a bit. But I think the players are only going to get better. But the the challenge now for the U.S. Women's National Team is that you know there's always been a lot of talk about the rest of the world getting better too. But I I think that that is really going to start coming into play in a much more <laughs> important way in the future. So. My guess is in terms of like golden generation formation of of women's soccer and and the the foundational like building that to me is still always going to be 99 and then the question becomes of like where we start to get into like best versus most influential right there's a lot of ways to look at it all right, TJ asked, do you get the sense that Angel City's recent moves, hiring, community outreach, analytics, recruitment, et cetera, are going to push other clubs to do and spend more and be more professional? Quick answer, yes. Uh, more complicated answer is still yes. Um, but I think that there's a couple ways to look at this. And Angel City coming into this league has has always been kind of like this game changer in terms of bringing a lot more attention and investment into a women's team, right? First of all, they have to live up to the expectations that we all have for them. Second of all is a team, you know, like Sky Blue is going to have to start obviously keeping up in a way that they've always had to keep up and they've always had to ensure that they're on that same level. Chicago Red Stars, same boat. Washington Spirit, same boat. You know, all these little, the, the, in terms of like budgets, right? Like that is that is baseline. But I think it's also, it's going to be really interesting to see how some of these positions that we have not really seen before, um, Angel City hiring Kim McCauley, right? To be that sort of analytics person. That is a very common thing on the men's side of the game and a thing that we have not necessarily seen get copied over into the NWSL. And it seems like it should be really like a straightforward call for teams to be like, oh yeah, I should make a serious investment into this because it's going to pay off in all of these myriad ways in terms of performance, in terms of, you know, making sure contracts are worth it, all that kind of stuff. So I think Angel City is also going to prove to be a really interesting test case for the rest of the other NWSL teams of, let's say all of these investments pay off and then you get to say, okay, like, here's my justification for asking for this money out of my ownership group. So that's actually like, there are multiple layers to it, but fundamentally, yes, Angel City and their investment and their approach to the game, I think will change some of the ways that NWSL teams operate. 
All right. Um, Hannah S. asked, what kind of women's soccer coverage can we expect post-NWSL Fall Series? And what is your favorite game you have ever watched live? All right. So uh, coverage, obviously, (laughs) I might actually sleep a little bit more once the Fall Series is done. But I do want you to know I have been working on a couple longer features. Um, If you have not followed along on some of the stuff that is happening with The Athletic, we have this new feature every day called A1, where it is on everyone's feed. I have, I think, three stories that are kind of in consideration for that. Um, Also have another project for The Athletic that I'm very excited about that is not necessarily in a place where I can like fully share details yet, but please know it is good. I've done some interviews for it already. I'm really looking forward to actually writing that story. Um, So longer features, me sleeping, obviously expansion draft is coming up. I think the other big story that um, I will be following is just in terms of like what the NWSL looks like in 2021. We've heard a lot of, you know, rumblings of competition might look a little bit different. I think some roster rules, but you know, it's the long-term planning stuff that is really, I think my bread and butter in terms of like where I like to focus my time. So as you can expect, that is probably what most of my off season is going to look like. Um, as for the second one, favorite game I have ever watched live. I mean, in terms of, I only went to one game from the 2015 (laughs) world cup. Actually, it was while I was still freelancing, but drove up last minute. Um, thanks to a friend giving me some tickets for the 2015 game between USA and Germany and Montreal. That was definitely a real, (laughs) a real game to be at. And it was great because I was just in the stands, uh, not writing and just actually enjoying it and being extremely stressed by a World Cup game. So one of my favorites, but from a 2019 work perspective, USA France has to be the pick there for the World Cup. Um, In terms of NWSL, I do think really any game that I got to go to in, in... Portland has to be up there. Um, It's just those are my favorite work trips, like pretty much by far have a lot of friends in Portland and just traveling there um, has always been a really, really good time. Um, But actually being able to to go to a game in Tacoma on one of those trips finally was really good. So really any NWSL travel um, automatically starts rating pretty high for me. All right, Carlisle asks, is there an archive of every NWSL game that can be accessed anywhere? I didn't really get into the league until 2019 and heard a lot about some iconic games in the early years, but don't know how to go about watching them. So for this one, um, fortunately, this is a pretty easy answer. YouTube is your friend. The NWSL channel on YouTube has a whole bunch of games from the early part of the um, the league's history and... Um, can definitely been, be relied upon. I know that they replayed some on Twitch, so those broadcasts still might be hanging around as well. But, you know, if you want some old school FC Kansas City games to watch, YouTube is definitely going to be your friend and you can definitely start with the league account. Someone who wanted to remain anonymous asked, how do you really feel when everyone asks you what whatever they don't know? Uh, where's the schedule? When is XYZ happening? Things that you definitely know nothing about. Um, so this question was actually the one that prompted me to wear my Meg is the schedule out yet t-shirt. Um, so I will say 
on this. Let me let me take a little sip of coffee here, just so that way. I don't usually mind it. I do sometimes, honestly, get a little bit frustrated when some of these things could probably be solved by Google, right? Like there are legitimately questions out there where I, I might not know the answer to them, right? When the schedule is coming out, but I very much also understand the frustration of people who are asking them and then that also turning into a joke, right? Like that kind of stuff usually doesn't bother me. The stuff that tends to, to actually kind of be like, really? is when the information is out there and I get that it is a faster process probably to reply to me or to ask a question uh, on Twitter and then just assume that, that I know the answer to it. But sometimes it is worth the extra step, I would think, of Googling first. Um, but also, you know, the nice thing about my mentions now is that people are looking at what gets asked of me and sometimes answering for me. So I don't even have to, to do it. Um, but generally, you know, the schedule thing especially is now just a joke that I can't escape. So I have to probably embrace it or go crazy. All right. Emma asks, what tips slash skills have you developed in maintaining the aforementioned work-life balance when you're doing high pressure, fast moving work that you believe in? This is a great question that I also don't know if I have a super great answer to. Um, I think the one lesson that I have had to learn since starting at The Athletic is that I am only one human who cannot get to everything and um, trying to figure out how to prioritize what needs to get done and what is most important, right? If I'm writing a feature um, and small news is happening, then I'm probably just not going to get to that news. And... I think there is definitely the expectation that I'm going to have a reaction or a take to everything. And that is also just not the case and being comfortable with sometimes not having every single one of my thoughts broadcast to the world. Um, it's just something that you have to get comfortable with. So I think the, the key thing for me is um, being reminded to eat actual meals every day is extremely helpful. Um, I have really tried to get into ensuring that I am working out on a regular basis because that has also um, really turned into a self-care thing over the past few months. Um, but I think that, you know, in terms of skills, it's just having a very well-maintained schedule and knowing what's expected of me, but also having people around me who can um, remind me that I am only one person, which is not necessarily a thing that <laughs> um, is necessarily a tip, but I think having people who can help you assess what needs to happen and when is extremely helpful. All right. Sarah asked, what is the best part of your job besides that it exists? What is the worst part besides the comment sections? Is it hard to separate being a fan and being media? All right. Best part of the job. Yeah, that it exists. Um, also being able to travel to go watch soccer games. Like I really can't complain when um, I got asked to come to the athletic. Part of that offer was, do you want to go to the World Cup in France? And that is a really hard thing to say no to, I'll be honest. Um, the worst part, the comment sections, obviously, I think are, are always a challenge. But I think the other, the hardest part for me personally is also promoting myself. That is not, the, the nice thing about when I worked for the NWSL, the league, is that you get to hide behind um, an account that isn't your own, right? So 
Um, it is having uh, not just like the self-promotion part, but, you know, if you put a take out there and you have this like long reasoning for it, right? And someone does not read it or does not watch the full video, right? And just reacts to like this player over this player. That's where I tend to struggle a little bit. Um, is it hard to separate being a fan and being media? I would say I'm now far enough into it that no, like back when I first really started getting into women's soccer, like photography really is where I started. Again, you know, like Heyo texting me out of the blue, right? It was just like, I, <laughs> I don't really know what's happening here. But now at this point, I think one of the things that helps me do my job really well is also just remembering that the players that I'm covering and the people that I'm working with are all people too. And that there's a fundamental level of respect that, that needs to go both ways. Right. Um, so I think I try to walk the line of like appreciating performances then and players that I really do enjoy, but also I think it's, it's pretty easy to not necessarily set aside biases, right? Like I, I think that everyone covering sports is going to have an opinion about a team, right? Either that they like them or they don't. Um, and I think that at this point, especially having worked for the league at, at this point, especially when it comes to the NWSL, like all of these teams are my, my messy, chaotic children <laughs> at this point. So there's something that I appreciate about all of them, about all of the players. And it's just really trying to walk that line of, um, I also don't do a lot of like, here's why this team is good or here's why this team is bad. So I, I get to kind of exist in the space outside of that. All right, last one from this section, and then we will move into a speed round and you can stop listening to me talk. Jess asks, short of burning down the patriarchy, in your opinion, what is it going to take for power systems to actually recognize the marketability and viable economics of women's soccer? Specifically looking at the recent news from Manchester with United unable to fulfill the demand for press and Heath shirts. Angel City is building a great foundation, but that's a whole new and exciting model. These existing systems just don't seem to get it. Again, big question. Um, I remember the first time we did the NWSL supporter survey at The Athletic, uh, asking what the biggest like challenge for NWSL women's soccer in general, and, and so many people just like wrote in the patriarchy, right? Um, ultimately, I think the answer to this is time, which is not a fun answer for anyone involved, right? Um, I mean, if you're a, a fan of women's sports and you go on the internet, you have seen the feedback about women's sports and you have seen comments about going back in the kitchen and, and all of this sort of stuff. And I think it is a building something new, like an angel city, right? Um, but I also think that, you know, we, we look at where we are now and we get really frustrated which is valid. But I think you also look at where we were five years ago, 10 years ago, in 1999, right? And you consider how far we've come. And it is so much like night and day. Just, I mean, I remember I was talking to someone recently and, and bringing up the fact that, you know, when the U.S. Women's National Team used to play in Algarve Cup, 
sometimes those games would be on like pay-per-view for $20 a game, right? That is not the expectation anymore. We are seeing real growth when it comes to television numbers, when it, and even though like, I know it does not feel like it with merch, like we are seeing so much growth and like understanding that there is a market there, even if they don't necessarily understand what the, the actual demand is. So I do think that the answer is time. And just knowing that there are going to be people who eventually are in charge of these power systems who are going to have a different approach to women's sports in general, to women's soccer, right? Um, that is not necessarily, a, a, again, a good answer. But I think it's, are there people within these power systems who are willing to be stakeholders and who are willing to vouch for what these sports can become. And those are the people that have to be identified. And then you just have to hope that there are people around them that are willing to listen. So I could probably go for that one on another full hour rant and and be a little more um, smart about my answer, but time. All right, we are definitely we are definitely going past an hour on this episode, but speed round, let's do it. Let's do it. I believe in me. All right. Pre-COVID, there was some talk momentum about a USL Women's League. What is the status of that? Do you think they will still try to give it a go post-COVID? Why or why not? That question is from Tom. So if you missed last week's episode with Angela Hughes, she spoke about this. Obviously, she was hired as a point person for USL's uh, women's soccer soccer efforts. That is currently on pause. I do think that they will still try to figure it out um, post-COVID, but obviously want to make sure the budget is set first. Uh, Amanda asked, what is your favorite beer made in the Boston area? Uh, Night Shifts, Night Light, I think is extremely drinkable. Sometimes it's at Whole Foods here in New York City, and whenever it is, I try to buy it. Um, I did really like Trillium's Pilsner when we went there, Um, and technically I can count Harpoon for this one. I will not probably be making my annual trip to the Harpoon Brewery in Boston around Christmas time for a few winter warmers and a pretzel, but I do really also like Fennel Friday, uh, which is to me just like pure, pure fall. Uh, Audra asked, what is currently your favorite social platform to get your thoughts out on why? Mm, social media for me these days is a real fun time. I would definitely say Twitter is still still the one. Um, but we'll, we'll see, you know, Twitter has its own challenges. Erin asked, what is your favorite whiskey? Hoping for two answers, special occasion whiskey and everyday drinker. Um, Van Brunt's bourbon. When I'm in New York city, they come to our farmer's market, which is fantastic. Um, if I'm in Vermont, it is smuggler's notch maple bourbon for sure. And then I've been trying to savor. My wife got me a bottle of Japanese whiskey for my birthday. Um, and I have been trying to make that one last. Uh, M asked, we always see you tweeting about your Jersey collection. Can you pick a few favorites and tell us why? I think the winner for me of just like funniest thing I've ever spent money on is when the Centennial kits drop for the U.S. Women's National Team. I are really U.S. national teams. I ordered one that had, um, Brune on the background for Becky Sauerbrunn and just, literally put in as many O's as I could within the actual form. Um, that I also really like Hummel's um, Afghanistan kit that I've had for a while. 
And then um, I have a WSA-era Boston Breakers jersey that Christine Lilly actually signed for me once. Um, that's good. And then, you know, Ford Madison, really always hard to go wrong with. I have three kits of theirs at this point, and I like all of them. So, um, all right. Charles asked, why didn't you uh, cover Tobin Heath and Kristen Press to Manchester United? Is there a process for you and other writers to claim a story? So I had kind of alluded to this on Twitter, just in terms of like, generally it is because I don't have time, right? Um, in this particular case, I will tell you, there is also the joys of um, time zones. But I will say the reason why I wanted to address this one is that in terms of like process, technically this would fall under my domain as U.S. Uh, women's national team. But Katie Wyatt is starting very soon as our U.K. women's football writer. I'm very excited to have Katie aboard. And then, yeah, there may, there might actually be a process in terms of me both trying to cover all of U.S. women's soccer, but also what is happening in the U.K. at the same time. So I'm very, very much looking forward to Katie starting. Um, Maddie had probably the funniest question of the forum, which is, who would win in an arm wrestling match, Alyssa Nair or Paige Nielsen? I, of course, had to take this one to uh, WhatsApp group chats. General consensus is Paige Nielsen. Um, we feel it, it was just really general consensus. Uh, Aaron asked, what is your favorite bridge? This is a very specific answer, but Hester Bridge at the New York Botanical Gardens. It is where I both asked my wife out for the first time ever, but also then where I proposed, um, in terms of another favorite bridge, the musical, the bridges of Madison County would also be up there for me. Uh, Nelson asked, who is your number one dream guest on full-time? This is a really good question that I don't really know if I have an answer to. I just tend to, <laughs> this podcast honestly is a very fly by the seat of my pants week by week thing. So there's not necessarily like a dream board of who's going to come on the show, but I will say I, I have never actually spoken to Mia Hamm in any sort of professional setting. And I feel like that would be really enjoyable. Um, I have had a pitch on my story list for over a year now about Mia Hamm's soccer game that was on Nintendo 64. And I would just honestly, like no matter what format it's in, love to talk to her about it. But also, you know, she is Mia Hamm. Um, but that is the one like very hyper specific thing I would like to discuss with her. Sarah asked, what NWSL and or US Women's National Team player has been a joy to deal with? Like someone who seems like a great person inside and outside of football. And the nice thing is that <laughs> there are so many answers to this question. Um, there are so many players who have always kind of like gone above and beyond. Um, I do always remember being like extremely struck by Lynn Williams the first time I spoke to her for an interview. She is definitely really up there. Casey Short is another one where going like, just like being a nice human being, right? Like there's just so many players I could actually answer with. I think Heather O'Reilly also very much has to be in this mix for me. Um, always really a player that I just like talking to, but you know, I could, I could do another 20 minutes of this. All right. NWSL memes asked, what is your favorite Starburst flavor? And yes, there is a correct answer. I have to give some context to this in that um, I am not a fruit person. 
<laughs> I don't really eat any fruit. Um, I do like certain fruit flavors. So if they're, if the correct answer is strawberry, then I'm going to strike out on this because I hate strawberry flavor. So if in a packet of Starburst, I will only actually eat the lemon and the orange flavors. And of the two of those, I would probably pick orange, but not, I'm not really a Starburst person, honestly. Um, and finally, 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 uh, Savannah asked, what is your favorite show you have seen on Broadway? And I am of course going to cheat <laughs> like a mofo right now because I'm very much a Broadway person. Currently it is absolutely Hades town. Um, absolutely love Hades town, but Bridges of Madison County, obviously previous shout out for me. Color purple with Cynthia Revo is also top, top three shows for me. Um, fun fact, uh, we were at the first show with Heather Headley for Color Purple and Oprah was there and she walked directly behind me and my wife. So that is our one fun Oprah story of living in New York City. Okay, 42 questions. Not all of my answers were great, but hopefully you are at least slightly entertained and you are still listening. Thank you to all of you who sent in a question. I think this was mostly a success um, <laughs> at attempting a podcast mailbag, but let me know how it went and if you would want another one of these. And one more thing for you, as promised, if you follow me on Twitter, you know I have been watching and savoring Ted Lasso. I did the thing where I dismissed this show because I was like, wow, I sure don't need a 30-minute version of like two NBC sports promos, but A... I was wrong. And B, the people who told me to watch it, thank you. I want to pass that favor on. The show is like honestly soul cleansing. I want an AFC Richmond shirt. <laughs> Their crest has a dog, right? Uh, I want a subplot next season where Ted Lasso realizes what a tremendous opportunity a women's team would be. And he goes out and like recruits Shannon, who's that one girl who's like playing pickup soccer all the time and like is passing the ball along with his kid when he comes out to visit. Like, why is she not more a part of the show? I would like more of her. I was very much thinking she's going to play a role in this, and then she didn't. Um, but basically, I wanted, I want you to give it a shot, <laughs> even though I also get how annoying it is to have like a million different subscriptions. It is worth the month um, for your money to watch the show. You could also watch the morning show or whatever else they have on Apple TV at the same time. But I do, I really think it's worth it. It is that good. And if if I could have Hannah Waddingham who plays Rebecca on this podcast, like please consider this an invitation. I would just want to talk to you. <laughs> you seem like a cool person. Also, we could talk about, about theater. So, you know, that's that's my open invitation. All right, so my Ted Lasso pitch is done. That is it for this week of full time. Uh, with Meg Linehan. Thank you for listening to the sound of my voice for what has to be well over an hour. I've recorded this in pieces, but it is 100% over an hour long. I'm so sorry. All right. That offer for a new subscription to The Athletic for $1 a month is at theathletic.com slash full-time. Again, your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are more important than you think. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and The Athletic itself. You can find me on Twitter at It's Meg Linehan. If you would like to fight me on anything I said in this podcast, you know where to find me. Uh, our podcast producer is Michael Zimmerman. 
Thank you, Michael, for handling this monster episode from The Athletic. I'm Meg Linehan. Thank you for listening. Thank you.